Hi, welcome to Space the Nation. I'm Anna Marie Cox. I am a journalist, but I am unwilling to join a military mission in deep space in pursuit of a story. <laughs> I'm Dan Dresner. I'm a professor of international politics at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy. And thanks to an Iranian friend I know, now how to pronounce Shora Agdashlu's name. That is very good. Shora Agdash. I didn't do it. Do it for me again. I will do it one more time. Shore Agdashlu. Shore Agdashlu. All right. Yes. We are recapping, in case you didn't notice, we are recapping Expanse Season 5 <laughs> and plan to take our incredibly nerdy combination of political science and science fiction commentary onto other universes, planets, books, and movies after we finish The Expanse. We have already started our list. We are very excited about the list, but we also uh, would appreciate suggestions from listeners. If you have a suggestion, you can send us a tweet at underscore space the nation or head to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash space the nation. That is also where you can give us money if you want to. We like money, um, but you don't have to. We plan on keeping the podcast free. We both have day jobs, which are fantastic jobs. This is something we are doing for fun, believe it or not. Um, yeah, I would do this for free. Maybe we shouldn't tell people that, Dan. What do you think? Should I? You said that out loud, so I'm not sure what you can do. Do we, <laughs> do we tell? Do we edit that out or not? I'm not sure. <laughs> I am a I am a bad negotiator. Um, Dan, why don't you kick us off as you always do with a recap? I'd be happy to. Uh, so it would be safe to say, just starting off this episode had no Amos in it and no drummer in it, which means that basically Anna and I, it's not that we hated the episode, we liked it, but maybe we didn't love it because our favorite characters weren't on it. And also, uh, but that said, this episode had a nice mix of jaw-jaw and war-war. We start off on the Pella, which I would describe as so much talking and then so much risk-taking. Let's start with the talking, though. Philip is catching up on Naomi's history on the behemoth. Marco talks to Philip and basically tries to sort of suss out whether Philip is actually having a uh, feelings towards Naomi, uh, you know, warm feelings towards uh, the mother. At that point, you know, it would be safe to say that, that Philip clearly does have some feeling for Naomi, but more importantly is willing to do whatever Marco says. Then Marco has a fun conversation with Naomi in the brig. Uh, just a lot of venom on both sides. And wow, Marco is insecure. That would be the way I would describe it. But after that uh, conversation, Marco decides to let her roam the ship. Uh, Naomi takes him up on that and roams into Philip's room, at which point Naomi and Philip talk and Naomi tells Philip the reason that she left uh, Palace Station, among other reasons, because Marco's, Marco essentially hid Philip from her and she had searched for him for months and to the point where she was so depressed that she actually considered spacing herself. There is some really interesting mom stuff here, and like it literally ends with Naomi almost cradling Philip like a baby. It's a little weird. I mean, it's it's very well done on on one level. I mean, you and I both love Dominique Tipper, and she's great, and the actor that plays Philip is great. I think they carry off some tough material here, and yes, maybe carry off is actually a little too strong. It's like. If with with I'll tell I'll say it this way if they weren't so good it would have been terrible because like I'll just say the first thing which is that he's way too tall to be cradled like a baby it's like really <laughs> like physically awkward you know no and they like, actually pulled that off I was legit impressed by that part and it was and like I was like huh uh, okay 
I will yeah. say the thing that got me is it was a little things that that made the scene when she picks up his razor. I knew exact. Mm-hmm. I mean, I knew exactly what that was about. Like when he says, "Are you going to take that razor, and, you know, and try to hurt somebody?" Yeah. I was like, "Oh, honey, yes, no, <laughs> you're a man now." She's being sad because you're a man now. I thought that I have like questions that, about that subtle space stuff. Razor we, yeah, I have questions <laughs> about that space razor. We will get to later, but keep going. <laughs> well, I, I think I'll also say about the Marco scene before that. I'm really glad we got a little bit of a taste of why she was with him to begin with, Mm -hmm. um, which we really hadn't gotten before. And they do show some scenes that are very believable. Um, People who are monsters aren't monsters necessarily 24-7. And you can fall Mm -hmm. in love with someone, especially if you have a child together. You know, like it's those bonds are real. And I would I would go even further than that. First of all, I I, again, props to Keon Alexander. He's doing a he's just. Acting his face role. off. Just. Yes. But like that that scene with Naomi in particular, I was genuinely impressed because you could see, as you say, it he was he's manipulative and all of that, but there was also genuine hurt, I think, in his side of that story. Mm-hmm. Which is that I think he honestly could not believe that she didn't come back to him. And the the oh my god, the bitter resentment about the fact that she is with Holden, which came out of nowhere and I sort of wasn't expecting, and then the moment he said it, it was like, Yeah, you know what? That that tracks yes yeah i i think that scene is a much better scene than the scene with philip and then just to track back to some themes we've had before about nature versus nurture mm-hmm. um which come up again in this episode that there's there's some times when people say you're my flesh and blood and whatnot but the scene with naomi and philip where you know especially where she cradles him there's a part of me that was like okay as a rule, the expanse seems to take the side of, you know, a nurture over nature. Nurture. Yeah. That you were, and also that people have choices about who right. they're going to be. So part of me was like, this is a weird dive into nature here, right? Yeah. But then I thought, you know what? No. Naomi is not, is not just his mother. She has shown him who she is. Hmm. He is not crying in the arms of just some woman who birthed him, although that is, of course, like, yes, we do. That can be an automatic connection. He is crying in the arms of the, probably the only person on that ship who he could cry in front of. True. Yes. Especially given what we see later. No. So it, your point is, is that it's not nature or nurture in the case of Naomi. It's nature and nurture for Naomi. I think that's a that's a good way of putting it. I, I guess if I have a critique... The scene felt a little tonally off given what is about to happen, what we wind up seeing going forward. And that's the way, in other words, as I was watching it, it was perfectly, I, it didn't strike me as odd. But then what happens later, which I'm about to get to, it, it does seem a little bit strange. But then again, Philip is a teenager uh, slash on the cusp of manhood. And, you know, in my experience with teenagers, to be fair, they can be somewhat volatile. Yeah, let's talk about that that turn after you finish the finish up what's going on on the Pella. Exactly. So uh, after that, um, Naomi finally talks to Sin and Sin, you know, gives some good guilt. They they have a conversation and you begin to understand why Sin has treated Naomi with more compassion than anyone else, because he confesses that he helped Marco keep Philip hidden from Naomi in Palace Station, which nearly drove Naomi to commit suicide uh, by spacing herself. After that, uh, 
Philip goes to Marco and basically asks for command of a ship, which gives Marco an opportunity to berate the hell out of Philip, because among other things, the Rossi is now, you know, uh, pursuing the Zemea. Marco's plans are not necessarily going uh, to fruition. And Marco just pulls the mother of all dick moves by basically saying, you know, you are nothing. They are chanting my name everywhere. What are you thinking? However, then perhaps recognizing he might have gone a little bit too far, tries to rescue the situation by saying, you know, <laughs> Philip did help and so forth. At which point they then bring Naomi in. Uh, Marco and Philip explain to Naomi their plans to use... The they do a little of- monologuing here that they didn't have to do. There's a yeah, little supervillain monologuing. <laughs> there's there's some good supervillain monologuing, but basically they're going to use Naomi's junker of a ship as bait to try to bring in uh, the Rossi. At which point they then uh, send Naomi out of the bridge, and then Naomi pulls the mother of all escapes, which is um, she goes to an airlock. You know, Sin follows her. You think she's about to space herself. She is about to space herself. But she's not going to die. Instead, she literally jumps from the Pella to the uh, Chetimoka, has a syringe of something that I assume contains juice that allows her to survive in space, grabs onto the Chetimoka, manages to board it, and is alive at the end of the episode, at which point I said, holy shit. Great scene. Yes. The science is sketchy. Yeah, but I don't not buy the insane. Okay. All because right, so, what so she has is actually, this is sort of funny. They actually previously established the use of super oxygenated blood when they revived Monica. That is true. Okay, and that's a good point. Because I would sort of I a nice that's a nice breadcrumb that they did, actually. Yes. That's um, fair. because that's what she does. Is she uses two shots of super oxygenated blood. And there okay. is like the science on this is like a human could conceivably survive in space for like 15 seconds or something like that. Right. Because it's not actually super cold. People like that's not the issue. The issue is, you know, air. it is super cold, but like it's also a vacuum. So the super cold wouldn't necessarily. Right, 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 right. Yeah. It's the no air that will kill you. And yes. um, like in the book, they get into more detail about it. Like she actually expels okay. all the air from her lungs. Mm-hmm. Which you would Which, want to do because if apparently if you kept the, all the air inside, that could potentially cause you to burst. Yes, exactly. So like she actually does, and she hyperventilates. Like they set this up oh, okay. in the book a little bit more so that she like thinks it through and like thinks about her trajectory and like it's the surprise is that she kills sin. Yes, I forgot to mention. I'm sorry. In, 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 <laughs> well, I, not necessarily kills in, sin. Yes, like, yeah, I would say not intentionally, but like in a, you know, sin follows her into the the uh, the airlock. In opening the airlock, sin does not follow her, and of course dies. Yeah, I thought it was super so, exciting. Also, the whole thing, the her eyes turning red, the blood vessels breaking yeah. in her eyes, is both scientifically what would happen, and also I thought of it as they were. It look it was a beautiful little shot. And also, I was thinking about, like, regret and tears. Yes. You know. So, Um, here was my objection. My objection was not to... Everything that you said sounds good. And I I, I kind of figured this was one of those moments where a a book reader might have bought it a little more than someone who was not a book reader. Because there was more exposition about what was happening. The only thing that I couldn't quite buy was, I guess, Naomi's use of her hand to actually grab the ship... You know, and like that was a pretty rough landing. Somehow grabbed the, the handhold, managed to get in without 
Well, frankly, her wrist snapping off because it was frozen. Well, that is like the part I don't quite remember from the book. Like, I'm like, I don't think they did that in the book. I mean, it makes it a little more exciting. I think it would have been plenty exciting if she just floated into the airlock. I mean, it was already like, even though I knew what was going to happen, I was right. It's great. I just, it was good. It was good. It was good filmmaking. If I don't know why gloves, they added that. That's on. all I'm saying. Right? <laughs> yeah, gloves. Like maybe she had gloves yeah. on in the book, but yeah, in the book, the, in the book, I think that this is this is already kind of an undertone in this season. But in the book, this whole arc with Naomi mm-hmm. highlights her hyper competence with machinery and technology mm. and logic. Like, and indeed, that was one of the ways in which she sort of the initial way in this episode that she connects with Philip is by talking about, you know, uh, repairing the air scrubber and so forth. Yeah. So yeah. Um, or fi- or build, rebuilding an air scrubber. So uh, perfectly the only good. other thing I want to say is Marco is a huge asshole. I cannot <laughs> like. <laughs> yeah, that he's scene a char- with Philip is I mean, oh, it's brutal. I've been around some abusive men mm-hmm. that it was. Was it? Was it triggering? Well, you know, actually, I mean, seriously, not really, because it's okay, um, two guys going at it, kind of. Yeah. But it was that, for one, and also I kind of saw it coming. Like, when he does the thing where he's like, yeah, you're right, you should get your own command. And then he laughs. I was like, oh, shit. Oh, yes. No, no. I just, no I, when he laughed like that, I had the exact, I had the exact same reaction. Of, oh, this is not going to go well for Philip. Yes. Agreed. Yeah. Oh, poor Philip. And, yeah. and the other thing I'll say, and we can get into this more maybe later, but... Yes, Keon Alexander, I hate his beautiful face, <laughs> but he was so good. His eyes betraying, you know, insecurity or emotion, his lips tremble a little bit at one point, which how do you act your way into lip trembling? Like that seems pretty uh, subtle. Yeah, no, no, no. Like this is someone who is good on Yes, it, it, I I had the exact same reactions. I really, again, it, it, kudos to Keon Alexander because it is a performance where simultaneously I keep yelling at the screen, "You dick!" and yet at the same time I cannot stop watching because he's yeah. it is it is simultaneously the asshole, but also legitimately the charisma. Um, yeah. it is it is an excellent performance. Let's go to the Rossi. Okay, uh, the Rossi, or as we would describe it, not the Pella. Holden is in full battle gear, which I think we've seen before, but, you know, he's he's in it again. They are uh, on their way to try to catch the Zemea. They get contacted by Alex, who sort of fills them in on essentially the Martian plot that we have seen throughout this entire season. They uh, correspond with, with Alex, uh, at which point they are still trying to pursue the Zemea. Holden and Monica sort of process the information coming in from Mars um, and game out the fact that clearly Marco has to be having some high-level MRCN backing, uh, or MCRN backing, rather, and uh, what does that mean exactly? At which point uh, they then find the Zemea. There is a very fun space battle in which lots of, of missiles are fired, lots of missiles are destroyed. The Zemea is hit Holden originally said they had to destroy the proto-molecule. Then he wants to board the Zemea to hopefully get information on where Naomi is exactly. But then the Zemea self-destructs. Did the proto-molecule go with it? I don't know. This was They say Marco has, a, Marco has an aside saying yes. something about we got the proto-molecule, right? No. I, yeah, he does. Yeah, no, he, I believe he says that. 
Let me put it this way. There was something that indicated that, that Marco cle- Marco said something like the Zemea knows what to do, which suggests to me the proto-molecule is not destroyed. It's probably out there somewhere. Yeah. Um, but it would be safe to say that the, the episode left that part vague. Yeah, I don't know. I'm, not, I'm pretty sure. I, I don't know. I, what I thought when um, the Zemea blew up and the thing about Marco says the Zemea knows what to do, yeah. I was like, this is a trap of some kind. Mm-hmm. I don't know what kind of trap it is, but there's some reason like there's a reason why they were lured to this area right and i think if memory serves not this episode but the previous one at one point marco's looking at sort of at like a, a various court course plots and it makes it it made it seem clear to me that the the free navy was planning to intercept the rossi um at some point or to to you know potentially deal with them but anna i i suspect that you have thoughts about holden's battle gear <laughs> he looks so silly i just <laughs> I just, every time they showed him, I'm like, Holden, like, is this, we were going to talk about masculinity in a second, spoiler alert, and that outfit to me, maybe he's a little compensating-ish something. I don't know. Like, I think he's playing at being captain or something. Like, this is not his comfort zone. It would be safe to say that that while, what I found interesting about this is that there's an interesting contrast, which we'll talk about a little bit later, um, between Holden and Marco in terms of leadership, but that said... I agree with you that that Holden's gear looks somewhat out of place, both because it's not something that he wears normally, and also because he does not have his clear lacrosse helmet that would go with that episode. Um, but speaking of ridiculous uh, outfits, we we should segue from the Rossi uh, to the Razorback, which is a totally ridiculous yacht. Not a ton happens here, but we do get some sort of important plot details, which is that uh, Alex and uh, Bobby are on their way to Tycho initially, um, but then they obviously realize that Holden is close by. Holden tasks them to track Naomi's ship, which they uh, agree to do. And also they find out, uh, they get a communication from Avasarala. Avasarala has all their intel, and we find out that the UN fleet is largely withdrawing from the sort of outer planets to the inner planets while sort of delegating certain task force to, to presumably try to intercept some of the Marcos Free Navy. So my thoughts on the Razorback, very brief scene. This is something I've wanted to comment on before, though. In the books, and I believe initially in the show, the Razorback is described not as a yacht, but as a Mm -hmm. racing skiff. Right. And that is what it is in the books, period. Mm -hmm. Where are they sleeping? Where are they going (laughs) to the bathroom? Is there I'm a kind bathroom of serious. in the Razorback? Yes. No, no, no that's because a fair point. Because in a racing skiff, like, again, as portrayed in the books, and also if you've ever, like, a racing bike, like, it, things that are racing things, you take off everything that's going to weigh it down, everything that's going to possibly, you know, produce drag or whatever. I guess drag doesn't happen in space. You're in but space, like, though. I mean, is that really that, yeah, I would say. Is that but I think really you would want it to be light. Yeah, that would make I, sense. I think that would still matter. I think if you wanted to go as fast as possible, you'd want it to be as light as possible. No, so no, that makes sense. So that's the thing I keep thinking whenever I'm looking at them. I'm like, are they just sleep? I mean, I guess the bathroom thing, they have space suits, and I'm sure that takes care of that. Well, I um, will say it, it wasn't the most important thing, but, like, my favorite moment in this, you know, indicates the sort of informality on that ship, which is Bobby just sort of, you know, digging a bullet out of her suit. Yes. That's also Bobby. That's like, yes, that, whatever. That was, again, it's a nice Bobby moment, though, like in an episode that's really not at all about Bobby, but, like... You get that. And also, I like when Alex is like, aren't you going to tell him about the awesome battle we had? (laughs) (laughs) He doesn't say it that way, but he basically says, like, come on, like, let's tell him about how we shot up a cool, you know, we had a cool battle and we shot a ship. And she's like, I'll give you one of my old medals. (sighs) Yes, that was so cold. So cold. 
Yes, good thing you're in outer space and you're used to that cold, because, man. <laughs> even Alex, like, Alex had nothing in response to that. Like, even he knew there was, like, even with just the two of them, there was nothing he could say in response to that. So, we are done with our tour of the Expanse mm-hmm. universe. And now, we come to my favorite part of the show. <laughs> Dan, is there IR in this episode? You know, when I first watched it, I thought, not a lot of IR. This is mostly a parenting episode. And then I realized... <laughs> what are you saying? That parenting is not like international relations? Oh, no. Parenting is very much like international about relations. about toddlers and yes. international relations, or at least a it, specific toddler-like leader. Absolutely. I did write the toddler-in-chief. But, but like, is there any, like, serious international relations in this? And I realized that there actually is. And it, it's in a conversation, a really interesting one, between uh, Holden and Bull about Fred. And about the proto-molecule. Because the lesson that that we learn in this episode is that the danger from weapons of mass destruction is not just whether they are actually used, but whether there are accidents involving them. And so the debate that, that Holden and Fred and to some extent Monica have was essentially, was Fred right to keep the proto-molecule, uh, particularly after the armistice presumably was signed with the inners? Fred's logic, which we recall from earlier in the season, was... He was keeping that as a deterrent until the OPA had a sufficiently large navy that they didn't need it anymore. There is a logic to doing that. I'm not saying that that Fred was wrong uh, in that way. But clearly the fact that the protomolecule was stolen indicates that sometimes weapons of mass destruction are threats not because of the intentional use of them, but because something goes wrong, because something is accidentally launched, or because something is accidentally stolen or destroyed. And what this reminded me of was actually the way that Pakistan, this is going to sound very weird, it's an odd segue, it's the way that Pakistan responded after Osama bin Laden was killed, which was when uh, the Obama administration sent in a helicopter force to destroy bin Laden in Abbottabad. They did not give Pakistani government any heads up. It would be safe to say the Pakistani government was surprised that the U.S. military was able to pull this off without any indication of any detection by the Pakistani military, and this caused them to freak out because they were suddenly worried about how vulnerable they were in terms of their ability to detect attack. And what they did in response to this with respect to their nuclear weapons is terrifying because what they wound up doing, and this was widely reported in a story in The Atlantic, is they basically put their nuclear warheads on flatbed trucks and started driving them around so that no one could find them, which in theory would make sense if what your concern is, is let's say the United States or obviously India targeting them. But on the other hand, Pakistan is not the most stable state out there. And the possibility of the truck being caught by, let's say, a militia or just crashing. crashing. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So many ways that could have gone south. Yeah. Like getting stopped by the wrong person or, you know, like that's a movie right there is like someone hijacks a, a truck thinking it's just trucks just a truck. And all of a sudden, right. oh my God, we have nuclear weapons in here. And, anyway. and again, this is, this. Pakistan is not going to get rid of the nuclear weapons. I understand from an IR logic that if India has nuclear weapons, they are going to, Pakistan will want a, a response. But at the same time, the threats posed by nuclear weapons, by biological weapons, whatever you, you consider a weapon of mass destruction, is not just that two states go to war, but also that command and control over those weapons might be uh, bulky or there might be near accidents or accidents in which something goes off. And really, 
there's a large literature about this, uh, books written by Eric Schlosser and Scott Sagan, which are really good about how close even the United States, which has the best nuclear command and control system, has come to accidentally setting off a nuclear weapon. I've always assumed that um, the accident factor is one reason why people like me in the 80s and 90s agitated for down you know downsizing our nuclear arsenal like that mm-hmm. is one reason like no it's an excellent just, reason yeah. you just want to have less of this around right like and and by the way to the obama administration's credit one of their sort of lesser like under the radar successes i think was they had a series of nuclear safety summits essentially to talk about this very issue in terms of making sure that nuclear material wouldn't be stolen or you know uh, compromised or what have you and again it's it's sort of one of those small all, you know, pieces of policy that nonetheless actually makes a difference. Well, you know what? It's a large scale version of the problem of having guns, any yes. kind of gun. Yeah. Like what happens, you know, guns are dangerous. Like, you know, the, this huge amount of Americans die, die from gunshots every year. Not most of them are either self-inflicted, mm-hmm. you know, or they're right. domestic violence. Yes. They're not a war. Like, let, exactly. to put it into IR, it's not a planned, you know, thing where two people are, like, going to try to fight it out. It happens right. just because it happened. This gun is laying around. It is almost literally a trembling hand. Yes. Yes. Um, yes. The other IR question, which is sort of an IR question, that occurred to me is based on actually that uh, Philip Naomi conversation that we talked about earlier in which at one point Naomi tells Philip that the only choice anyone has is whether to walk away. Mm. Um, and I got to say that I, that didn't quite sit with me. I mean, I understood the point of it in the in the episode and God knows it previews a really inter- you know the, the the escape at the end. But what I I guess the way I would put it is that walking away might be the last choice anyone ever has. There are other choices. Albert Hirschman, who's one of my favorite scholars, wrote a great book once called Exit, Voice, and Loyalty, basically about how people react to adverse situations in an organization they're a part of. And exit is certainly one option, but the other option is voice. The other option is you start complaining. You actually try to lobby from within the Are you the adult in the room, Dan? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I'm guilty as charged on this one, yes. The other option might be... (laughs) <laughs> yes, exit. It's not to say that you shouldn't ever exit or that, that right. exit is a irrelevant option. Exit is very important, but it's not the only option. The other option is you stand and actually try to make a difference from within. And that Thank is you, Rex Tillerson. Yes. <laughs> <God>. <laughs> Don't make me defend Rex Tillerson. God damn you, Anna. Oh, that pisses me off. All right. <laughs> For what it's worth, I think that Naomi is obvious. I mean, this is obvious, but I'll, I'll yeah. say it anyway. Which is that what she is doing is, I think she's she's positing it as the last resort. Yes, like that's that, that, not the only thing. Like that's the right. only thing to do. But I tried all this other stuff. I looked for you. Um, I looked for you again. I thought about suicide. Like I did all this stuff to try and be with you and be your mom. Right. And at the end, the only thing I had left. And that would have been fair, but it was it was it was literally okay. just that line. And like, if there was a slight word change, I think I would have been fine with it. But like, I was like, no, exit isn't the only choice you have. There are other choices. But I, given you're right, given Naomi's sequencing, given what had happened to Naomi before that, I agree that she, that was the only choice she had at that moment, and that totally makes sense. And I, so I'm not trying to say that Naomi was. Wrong oh, it gave us a good IR tangent. Yeah, go. So, and I got to compare you to Rex Tillerson. So that was fun. <laughs> Um, speaking of Rex Tillerson, speaking of, of good leaders, <laughs> speaking of leaders, 
yes. <laughs> leaders, people yeah, who try to lead. Dan, I understand you have a theme you'd like to introduce. I do. We both have themes. And uh, the theme I would like to talk about, which I did think was interesting in this episode, was the sort of nature of, of political leadership. Failure is why we're out here. You'll spend enough time with someone and you get to see how full of shit they are. I spent half a lifetime with Fred. I still don't know. Hard to find people like that. I'll save your tears. I'm a fighter. Strength makes us who we are. Killing people doesn't mean you're strong. So I, I will say one of the things that I legitimately found interesting in this episode was that really the 90% of this episode is basically seeing how Marco leads as opposed to how Holden leads. And even though Holden is out of his element to some extent in terms of being in the battle gear, what what he is in his element is, is talking with both Bull and Monica. And the contrast with Marco is fascinating because Marco never admits that he screwed up on anything, right? Marco cannot admit error. And he sees that as an act of weakness. And, and so as a result, he is incredibly psychologically manipulative. He manipulates Naomi. He manipulates Philip. He manipulates Sin, for Christ's sakes, you know, and, and gets, inc- you know, just incredibly defensive. And the thing I liked about Holden as a contrast is that Holden acknowledges multiple times that he might have been wrong about certain things. You know, he says, I never trusted Fred. And in retrospect, Fred was always straight with me. You know, and, and so like there there's a recognition of learning. And and the interesting thing there is that I think in some ways there's a way in which that that that's a more sustainable path of leadership because Bull, you know, clearly grows in respect for Holden. Monica grows to some extent in respect for Holden. And it's not that we terribly, you know, see all that much, but it also allows Holden, by the way, even when he slightly reverses course when, you know, he says, I want to board the ship rather than than destroy it. They don't rebel automatically. They they understand that Holden is sort of wrestling with this stuff. And so I guess in some ways the, the point is, is that Holden's more transparent form of leadership, even though it might be seen by many as soft, I actually think winds up is less brittle and more effective in the long run. But he's got that awesome suit on. So Okay, I grant you the suit. Anyway. <laughs> and actually, this gives me a segue to talk about something I've been meaning to bring up, which, which is what the fuck is Marco wearing? Like... <laughs> Have you noticed like that thing? Like it's like a bandolier kind of thing. It has a has like a phoenix belt buckle or something. I, Are it, you? Do you know what I'm talking about? I do. And okay, I know you think Marco is an asshole, but that said, it kind of looks pretty good on him. Well, oh, actually, that was the point I was going to make. Okay, is yeah, that I yeah. wonder if this is intentional because Holden looks literally uncomfortable in yes. that battle suit. Like he That's looks fair. like he is physically not really you know, doesn't yeah. like it. Whereas Marco wears that suit like a second skin, you know, like <laughs> he is clearly like, this is what he loves is, about being a elements. leader. Like yeah, he exactly. loves putting on this, this, this clothes, these clothes. He loves like show, like being a showman. Right. Right. Um, I think this is a really good insight. And I, I also want to, I loved that bull quote because what I love about it <laughs> is the way it, when it starts, you're like, is this a compliment or not? Right? <laughs> like, <laughs> and and even the even the twist where he says like usually so you know you you find out you know where people are bullshitting you or whatever he says, and he mm-hmm. says I never figured out what th- that with Fred, and even mm-hmm. then there you're kind of like, you know what what is his point here? And then he he reveals no that's a good thing. Yes, exactly. Right? It's a good thing because he, I never saw him bullshit me. Right. And I love the way he frames that. I love. Yeah. 
and and I that feels very true I, to Bull. And we're we're getting a really cool character now. Yeah, yeah. The way I would put it slightly differently is that I th- how to put this. There is an element of bullshit to any kind of to any act of leadership, right? I mean, it's it's legitimately true that that part of being a leader is inspiring others, and that actually requires occasionally acts of bullshit. But I think I, the, the the takeaway I got from Bull's point was that okay, but you also can tell over time when that's what they're doing, and the sort of ratio of honesty to to bullshit. And I think the thing is that both Fred and Holden kept the bullshit to a minimum. I really appreciated that you're doing leadership because that actually fits in really well with what I want to talk about. There were, in fact, a few quotes that you used that I wanted to use in my montage, which is about toxic masculinity. Go! (laughs) I raised him to be the fighter I thought you were. I'm not you. I know. But I hope you're not him. I'm my own man. He doesn't control me. Don't need him or you. You helped me save Philip from his mother. And helped me raise him into the man he is now. Your weakness nearly undid everything we fought for. That's who you are. Belters everywhere. Are chanting my name. Not yours. You are nothing without me. This is a you. You're not him. You have no idea who I am. But I know who you are now. A pathetic, utter loving Wawala. You tried to make me weak. Tried to poison me against my real family. You are everything I am not. You really think that you could get my son, my own flesh and blood, to betray me? You are nothing. So, Anna, I have to give you credit when when you said you wanted to talk about this. It that was something that did not occur to me as I watched the episode, but the moment you said it, it was like, oh, damn, yes, that is definitely there. So, you know, go to town on this. Well. I will confess that I didn't get to that theme right away. What what happened for me is that right from the beginning, you have all these statements coming from both Naomi and Marco and Philip, and to a certain extent, I think Bull says something about it, where, where people are saying, like, that's not who I am, or you don't know me, or that's who I became who I am. And I thought, right. well, maybe this is about becoming who you are. And then I realized that most of those statements were either explicitly or implicitly about becoming a man <laughs> specifically about becoming a man even or weirdly a fighter alex, even weirdly or, alex and bobby's little exchange about yeah. fighting yeah that that also fits into this i agree yeah right and and i think it must have been intentional because while the expanse is very interested in you know nature and nurture very interested in race and class um, this is the most I feel like I've seen like this really explicit engagement with toxic masculinity, which of course Marco is exhibit A, right? Oh, God, yes. It's just, it's constantly all over the goddamn place for them. And to me, it's especially interesting because of course, so Marco is exhibit A and, and the, not just implied, my God, like they lay it out really clearly that he has tried to make Philip the same kind of toxic man mm-hmm. that he is, right? And 
there was something a little bit interesting in that scene where Naomi goes into his cabin and sees the air scrubber. In our culture, we con- we usually code like tinkering with stuff as masculine, like mechanical mm-hmm. stuff as masculine. I think of it's already tr- true in the expanse that that is not the case. Like they v- are very clear, like women, men, whatever. In fact, I think we see it's possible we see more women than men doing the kind of like tech work of space. Yeah, I think that's. I mean, Sakai, for example, earlier in this season, and and right. uh, yeah, there are others in in previous seasons. Yeah. So it's not really coded masculine or feminine, but in this particular case, I actually was like, no, this is who Naomi is. She's a creator. Mm-hmm. Naomi creates. Naomi puts positive things into the world, right? <laughs> and this side of Philip that is redoing the the air scrubber is that part of Naomi, right? Yeah, and it also, by the way, explains why Naomi's original trauma that starts all of this is that is the knowledge that she wrote the code for the augustine gamera uh, oh that's really good i hadn't really um, gotten that but like no, it's very connected like she's a creator she wants things to do well she wants to send things off into the world right right and, and so Marco she creates the code but but it destroys and so yeah and i think that that in some way in some ways that is the pivotal moment in naomi's life in the sense of that's when she realizes she can no longer continue on the path she she wanted to or she thought she was going to with marco because towards that way lies destruction and not creation in the most intense scene having to do with toxic masculinity in this episode is one that I literally gasped, which is when <laughs> Naomi is pleading with Philip and she says, this isn't you. No. You're nothing like him. Mm-hmm. And then he fucking slaps her. Okay. So this is, yes. And I, I actually, I, my mouth went open when he did that as well. I was legitimately shocked. That is a hard thing to see, and and also I think evidence of the degree to which Marco can legitimately manipulate Philip. And I, but that said, let me put it this way: there was a small part of me when that happened that wasn't sure it was real. Like I was wondering, was Philip play acting, and like actually like when searching Naomi had given her something like to help her escape. Like that was how. I was I wasn't sure what was going on there. Well, you were saying like before, like Philip seems to turn, yeah. you know, uh, quickly from being sympathetic to not right. being sympathetic. I think this is an example of just what a master manipulator Marco is, yeah. and also the fact that Philip's a teenager, yes. um, and that he hasn't really seen Naomi that much. Right. You know, he hasn't right. been able to be affected by who she is and the, and the warmth and the family that she represents, and how that scene climaxes is he says. I am everything you're not, right? <laughs> yes. Which is this male, female. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I am what you are not. You know, you are the void. Like, you are the, like, you're the <laughs> woman. Like, I am, I am, I am. And then there's an interesting sort of ma- masculine feminine twist that happens when Marco is speaking to Naomi. And he says, you thought you could turn me against me, my own flesh and blood, which mm-hmm. is an interesting sort of contesting Naomi as a mom, right? Well, like and claiming, again, this is like th- this is where a small part of me feels some small measure of sympathy for Marco because in some ways this is also the cry of a single parent. You know, Marco did rate I I I don't mean to in any way deny Marco is just an asshole on on multiple dimensions, but that said, he did raise Philip on his own, and it's clear that he resents Naomi for what well, she did. Well, let's say he didn't See, the thing is I would push back like that's very kind of you to say that about single parents and I mean, being a single parent is incredibly difficult. I mean, I, right. I, I grew up with single parents. But Marco didn't raise Philip. He molded Philip. That's and true. he and actually he... explicitly talks about that. 
No, I don't believe that that he I mean, he says use the word raised maybe, but when he uses the word raised, he's he's talking about training. Yeah. More than he is nurturing. No, that's fair. And I will say, it, in some ways, the other thing, the, the the small scene that struck me was that there was a moment where Marco and Sin are arguing, and it was literally almost like parents bickering about a child, where Marco mm-hmm. talks about the fact that the two of the, the two of them raised Philip together, and it is clear that Sin is the mother in that. Yeah. Represents the mother in that in that moment. Was because, the nurturer. Exactly. Yes. Right. And then I'll just sort of end that when, when Marco says that, you thought you could turn me again. He ends with you are nothing. So there's a lot of like negation of Naomi, which is like a classic toxic masculinity move, right? To just negate everyone else. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I just think it's really interesting. I have to think it's intentional. Again, God, Keanu. Whoa. Yeah. Like just- one thing, hi. Um, if you're listening, um, and then it, it it was the it was the scene where she said she's yelling "I hate you," where his lip trembles, and I was like, "How do you do that? Yeah. Like how?" Anyway, anything so, more to say about our themes, Dan? Uh, no, I think it's it's time to talk about our debris fields. Into the debris field we shall go. Would you like to begin? Yes. Yeah, so a, a couple of things that I thought were sort of interesting in this. The first was, and this didn't occur to me, or it's, it's it's some small points, but the idea that being raised a belter has certain rituals that we would not associate as you and I are both inners. The idea that one's first spacewalk would be a big deal. Like, uh, oh, he's doing his first spacewalk, honey, come here. Exactly. I, I mean, you've got to think that's been recorded and uploaded to the cloud. I mean, obviously. Um, but just as a, a baby's first spacewalk. You send it off to your relatives. Look, look, he did his <laughs> exactly. first spacewalk. And at the same time. Baby's you know, first spacewalk. Right. Baby's first spacewalk. And then, of course, what happens when people die in, in, in the belt? And I, I don't remember if this had been talked about in previous episodes, but like the idea that if you die in the belt, your body is is then recycled and used for compost. I'm assuming in order to uh, allow things to grow. So, and and this comes about because there's a discussion about whether or not Bull will have you know honor Fred's last wishes about you know recycling him, but Bull doesn't want to do that. By the way, like what the fuck? Like why not? Like yeah, I mean I don't know. Like that's sort of a that that seemed to me like I don't know needlessly jerky to like not if when anyway yes. It was, but anyway, I, I again, these were like nice small touches, which I wouldn't have thought about. But of course, like of course, someone spacewalk would be a, a big deal. The second little uh, sort of piece of space debris is again the space razors. Now, how to put this gently? I have questions about the space razor because you know it looks like a normal razor that we would see with like a, a normal straight edge. You know, I've shaved you know with one of these razors. Uh, all I kept thinking watching that is technically these people are in zero g. And, you know, shaving your face like that is just going to cause hair to float out. They're in light G. Ah, okay. Because if you notice, if it was zero G, everything would be floating everywhere. Right, right. And instead, she picks up the razor. Yeah. Right? And also the the air scrubber is, like, sitting on on something. It's not, like, levitating. Right, but the reason why they're they're grab boots and stuff is because it's lighter. Like, it's... You need to be able to like not. If you walked in light G, like every step would be like 
I'm just saying, yes, but even in lychee, you know what? An electric razor might have been the better way to go. That's all I'm, that's all that I'm saying there. That is true. And then my last piece of, of space debris is really a, a question for you, Anna. There is a very brief moment in the beginning of the episode in which, you know, Naomi is sort of having a flashback thinking about uh, her time with Marco and, and Philip when he was just a little baby and everyone looks so cute. And Marco is wearing a man bun. So Anna, Marco's man bun, yay or nay? You know, I always feel like it depends on the person, and I think he can probably pull it off. Fair enough. You know, like, I mean, I'm not a huge fan of them in general, mm-hmm. but, you know, I guess, like, <laughs> The Expanse has an early 2000s period, too. Like, I don't <laughs> know, like, things go in and out of style there we go. Um, in The Expanse universe. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's funny. I also want to talk something about Marco's appearance, which is something that was raised by one of our listeners. Mm-hmm. And as a tattooed person myself, um, I am a little embarrassed I haven't caught this before, but... Marco has no visible tattoos. He's the only belter we see with no visible tattoos. Philip has one tattoo. And that's actually something that if you are looking for, because I was thinking about the tattoos, I noticed mm-hmm. he has the he has the one around his neck, which I right. assume I could find out what that means. I it, mm-hmm. it might it I I would guess that you gather tattoos as you go through life. I, I think that's how it I works. Have. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like um, and it's true. Like, I've always assumed the belters get tattoos for the same reasons that most humans do. And I do. Like, all of my tattoos have, like, a personal significance. They're, like, a sign of passage through some part of my life. Right. Now that it's been pointed out to you, don't you find it odd that Marco has no visible tattoos? I do find it odd that he has no visible tattoos. Have we seen, I, you know, you have we seen I would Marco notice. shirtless? I would yeah, I was going to say, yeah, exactly. Uh, so I don't think, yeah, I, I did wonder, like, are there tattoos underneath? But that said, you're right. Presumably one of the points of tattoos, I would assume, is that sometimes you want them to be visible. Um, and belters especially. Like we exactly. talked about yeah. how I think part of belter culture is like extreme signage kind of like that you you are you broadcast in other ways besides voice and that tattoos are part of the way that you communicate without language because yeah. they, you know, you can't depend on language in a vacuum. And so it, the point of belter tattoos is that they're visible. <laughs> <laughs> You know, like even the way Naomi's chest tattoos, like she usually, they're almost always like visible, right? Like she's almost always yeah. wearing something. She's always wearing something where it's like, yeah. Yeah. So one of our listeners said that in the books, and I I can't recall if it's a reference to his tattooness, tattooness, tattoo, lack of tattooness um, or not, but um, that Marco secretly craves the approval of inners. Oh, that's an interesting theory. Maybe. I guess the question becomes, uh, the thing I guess I would want to know is, surely the lack of visible tattoos would actually affect how belters would respond to him, right? I mean, someone, I guess my question is, is that if you if you look like you're adopting the, the tropes of the inners, wouldn't that actually raise suspicions about you? Yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting, I, I wonder if they're ever going to get into that. I think that it's might an be interesting, interesting question. Um, yeah. Also on Marco. Yes. Um, do we believe... Mm-hmm. That he would not have blown up the Augustan Gamara if he knew that it would upset Naomi. So this is what Marco says in the very intense right. uh, brig scene with Naomi. And again, I, you know what? I am going to give props to Keon Alexander yet again because the answer is I don't know watching that. Because on the one hand, he is a manipulative fuck. And I have no doubt that he would have been willing to say that just to, to tweak with Naomi. That said, the way that line is delivered, I believed him when he said it. And so there is a part yeah. of me that thinks that that it, there might be some truth to it. And I don't even think I don't even know if he knows 
the answer to that question. I think he doesn't know the answer. Yeah. I don't, I think he probably would have blown it up anyway. Yes. Because the other thing about the little rant that he does is that ultimately it's actually not about Naomi. It's about him. Right. Because everything is is about him. Right. And this is, if anyone's ever been in a relationship with a pathological narcissist or just a narcissist, I mean, that is what it sounds like. Because every time he talks about her, it is what you did for me kind of like you made me feel this way like you you know affected me in this way like well and also i I think it's so i mean naomi obviously holds a special place in in marco's mind for a variety of reasons but i think the most obvious one is is that naomi is the only one who ever left marco yeah and that Mm -hmm. you know for a narcissist that's that's got to be devastating oh i think that that's that's that the that the heart of his issue with her is not about love or not it's about that she actually made a choice that he didn't approve of and got away with it yeah. I will also give props to Monica. Also, hi, Anna. I am sure she's an Anna. Um, Anna Hopkins, hello. Anna Hopkins, hello, yes. if you're listening. She says we in regards to their mission a lot in this episode. I don't know if you noticed that. I did. Like, what are that, we going to do with the proto molecule? Yes. What are we going to do? And part of me was like, is that being a good and manipulative journalist? Like,. <laughs> You know, so I look forward to the ethics and journalism seminar <laughs> that will take place, you know, right. presumably right. No, on Tycho I mean, Tycho this is something Station. you can do. Like, you, you, it's, I've never slipped into this, but it's easy. Like, if you're, I've only, I've never been embedded in a, you know, military space mission, but I've been embedded on campaigns. And it is actually pretty easy to start to think of yourself as part of the team. Like, right. I don't think I've ever slipped very far into it, but it's. It's just if you're living together and eating together, sleeping together, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. maybe more ways than one. Who knows? That happens. Yeah. I'm sure it happens on ships. It happens on campaigns for yes. sure. E- even if you know you're you keep doing your job the way you're supposed to do it, and I, I'm not accusing anyone of like being. Even if you're a good journalist, it's hard not to like think of it as a we. I mean, to be so, fair, I would I would sort of view this in the same way that you would view sort of the embeds in the post 9/11 world. You know, because I mean, let's face it, there there was a very there was a raw raw element to that to those embeds, but at the same time, it was in response to one of the most heinous terrorist attacks uh, you know in history. So, and in some ways, that is exactly what Monica is dealing with now, given yeah. the theft of the proto molecule and the potential uh, destruction of Earth. And this is her second mission with Holden too. Yes. So there's a past there as it were. There's a relationship. And in fact, oh, that, by the way, that goes back to this notion of Holden actually cops to the fact that they were hiding a piece of the proto molecule. Yeah. When, when uh, Monica was on last time. And again, that's, Oh, and thank God she's on that mission too. Cause she's the one who actually figures everything out. Yes. Like she's the one who actually lays it all out with Holden. Like, Oh, this is, must be what's happening in Mars. Cause actually it's funny. Cause Holden says, Marco must have supporters on Mars. And she's the one who's like, not supporters. Right. <laughs> she doesn't say that, but like. So th- this is the, qu- the the compliment that I would play Monica, that I would pay Monica is that she is not just a beat reporter, that I would trust Monica <laughs> to also do this, the, the the sort of step back and like write the the sort of Sunday, you know, column of this is what it all means. Um, yes. So she's she's got multiple dimensions as a reporter. How about that? Yes, I, I agree. I, I think that um, I was about to say <laughs> I was about to call it Bob Woodward of space, but I think she's actually even better than that. No, that's like, yeah. I was I don't call yeah. it a Bob Woodward. She's the she's the the Peter Baker or David. Sanders I think Lawrence Wright. I mean, I'm going to go. There we go. Ooh, I wow, think that's... Lawrence Wright is a great a great compliment to her and actually a pretty good model. It'd be that interesting to what Lawrence Lawrence would think of that. Yeah. Um, 
But one last, last thing. The space battle, and also there's a scene where, like, Holden is, like, pressing buttons. There's a part of me that always wonders, like, what is it like as a serious actor to be, like, having to pretend to do serious things and, like, shake? Like, I think they still have to do that, right? Like, I think so. Yeah, when yeah. The, the camera, they can't actually shake the whole set. Right, they set, can't simulate you know? the set. So it's like, all right, everyone go to the right. Everyone go to the everyone left. Everyone go to the right. Yeah. Everyone go to the left. Yeah. <laughs> There's a part of me. Red alert. With, <laughs> with Stephen Strait especially, because <laughs> we all know actors, studio, Stephen Strait. There's part of me that's like, I wonder if he does a method thing for that. I have to admit, what this makes me think of is there is a there was a show that that uh, started last year on HBO um, in 2020 called I think Avenue Five. Uh, oh, it was yeah. with Hugh Laurie. Without giving anything away, um, there is literally a, a a thing about how actors in the, you know how actors press buttons, and so that that's what this makes me think of. It's sort of the space version of pretending to type. Yes, for a journalist, I think we've wrapped up. Perhaps this episode will be even be under an hour. We're trying, we will, guys, yeah. out there. As a non-reader of the books, Dan, would you like to speculate or say anything about what you're looking forward to or would like to see resolved? So obviously there was no drummer and no Amos in this episode. So I want to know what the hell is going on with those people. Those were our favorite people. But I, I do have a few other questions that, that this episode reminded me of. The first is, I want that Mars shoe to fall because in some ways the very fact that Monica has puzzled this out. And the fact that the intel is now available with Earth, presumably whoever is running this operation on Mars has got to make their play soon because this is now public knowledge. Not to insult Monica, but the fact that if, if people like Monica can game this out, everyone has gamed this out. Mars has got some splaining to do and I want to see the splaining. The other thing I want to know is who is running Tycho right now? And <laughs> can we trust who is running Tycho right now? Because, you know... The first half of the season is all about the fact of, hey, you know what? There are some Marco and Aris faction people on Tycho. They really were able to disrupt stuff. Fred's dead. Bull is on this ship. I want to know who the hell's running Tycho. You know what? That's a really good question. And it's unlike in the books, I will say that there is an extraordinary amount of attention to detail. You, I don't, I don't think that I've told this to you before, but the game started out as a tabletop game exercise, like a drug, Dungeons and Dragons type thing, a role-playing Oh, really? Um, thing. Huh. And I think that that is one of the reasons that while they're so why the book series is incredibly tightly plotted mm -hmm. is because everything means something like you have no extraneous action. Oh, like every okay. little thing is going to come back, you know, and matter. And so there's a part of me that feels like that might come into play. Like, I don't think this is just a blank of like, oh yeah, we forgot to put someone in charge of Tycho. Right. You know? And no, and by the way, that this um, also, it doesn't it's not just Tycho. I also want to know what's going on in the rest of the belt. Like, is is there any remnant yeah. of the OPA that is resisting Marco? What's going on in Medina Station? You know, and and to be fair, part of this is you've only got so much time and you know, yeah. you don't want to exposit too much, but like I want to know what the hell's going on. Right. Um and of course, you know, the I mean the whole exodus from Earth, and we know we're gonna get more on that. Mm -hmm. I would say as a reader of the books, I was so happy to see Naomi's escape happen. I'd been looking forward <laughs> to that basically since the season started. And it was just as impactful. That's that's the crazy thing, is that that's it was good. just as cool and tense to watch. That gives me some optimism about what's gonna happen for the rest of the season. And it also makes me feel like they're not gonna cut that arc short which I was worried about because it's just, if they play this out the way that it's played out in the books, you're going to spend a lot of time with Naomi alone. 
Oh, interesting. Okay. <laughs> like while she like is a hero in her own story. Right, but but and, yeah. But she doesn't interact with a lot of people because she's on that ship by herself. So I'm kind of hoping we're going to see that because I think that Dominic Tipper can carry it off. And yes. I think it's a really cool story. I look forward to this. So let's see. I also missed Amos. I'm sure we're going to get more of that. But I think we can start to wrap up, Dan. Yeah. You know, Anna, I'm sure Amos will return next week, and so will we. Remember, if you have questions, compliments, or money for us, again, we like money. We also like compliments. You can go to our Patreon page, uh, patreon.com slash space the nation, or you can tweet at us at underscore space the nation, or tweet at us directly, like certain cast members have. And again, thank you to Anna Hopkins, who plays Monica, and Keon Alexander, who plays the asshole Marco. And if you want to tweet at us directly, he is at Dan Dresner. I am at Anna Marie Cox. I would like to extend a special thank you to our 55 patrons. Dan, we have 55 patrons. Thank you all very much for being with us on this uh, journey that has only just beginning. We have promised a patrons-only episode once we get to 100 patrons. So if that's the kind of thing that you're interested in, you should become a patron. You can do so for as little as $3 a month. I really hated the way I said that. <laughs> I feel like I sounded like a huckster on late night television. And with these additional we'll time keep... life books, you, that's <laughs> you, right. can, you can dark your library. <laughs> we, we offer merch. <laughs> <laughs> I would also like to thank Karen Qualley and Lee McMahon who do the actual work on these episodes. And I think that's it, Dan. Until next week. Keep this channel open for more. <laughs>